All right, let's fucking do oh, this. Okay. Rape, 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 rape. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I am leaving the podcast. <laughs> Sorry, trigger warning. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm quitting. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rachel Handler, and welcome to Lady Problems, where every Thursday, me and a rotating crew of ladies look at the way that pop culture is treating women in a given week. It's almost always terribly. This week, we have the OG trio co-hosting. I'm here with Hazel Sills. Hello, Hazel. Hi, Rachel. And Teo Bugsy. Hi, Teo. Hi. First, we're going to talk about a very American idea that's been expressing itself in response to two movies that are in theaters right now, Elle and The Handmaiden. This idea that all on-screen sex should be quote-unquote real or representative of all sex and how this idea discredits or underestimates the agency of female performers. And then we'll also delve into this week's controversial story about Bertolucci and Maria Schneider and the rape scene in The Last Tango in Paris. Later, we'll talk about what we can do this week to fuck with the Trump administration. And then we'll answer a lady problem for one of our listeners who doesn't know how to work with coworkers who voted for Trump. We've all seen Elle and The Handmaiden very recently, two movies that are in theaters right now. And we're we're going to talk about how their uh, sex scenes have been sort of controversial for different reasons and our own opinions of that and, and how we sort of believe that this idea that sex should be realistic or like not male gazy is is sort of undermining the idea that female artists have their own agency when it comes to sex scenes. And Teo, I know you've been, Teo was the one to sort of bring this up. So Teo, why don't you share your... Your thoughts. So there was a recent BuzzFeed article, um, The Handmaiden and Lesbian Sex Scenes, um, that Hazel sent to me, actually. And it's interesting. These articles come up kind of every time there is a lesbian movie. And it's just something that's been on my mind for a really long time in that, you know, the article sort of goes through why the sex scenes in uh, Park Chan-wook's movie, The Handmaiden, um, are, is like inappropriate and exploitative and um, it objectifies lesbian sex. And specifically, the writer focuses in on scissoring and like why scissoring is offensive and that it keeps getting included in films made by men about lesbian sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it like brings up the film Blue is the Warmest Color, which I think we've all seen. And yep. yeah, it's it's kind of this ongoing conversation within lesbian media. And it's just one that's always sort of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to be really gross this whole time. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. Let's talk about The Handmaiden, because mm. The Handmaiden is its own fascinating yes. subject. Speaking yeah. of like fucked up movies about women yes. that we like, uh, The Handmaiden is this movie that's sort of like a, I don't know, like it's a thriller, but there are lots of twists and all of the characters are like somehow fucking each other over and also fucking each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of weird sex in this movie and there's a lot of weird sex throughout this filmmaker's whole filmography. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, like, a weird kind of, like, like sexy octopus. There's lots of, like, references to tentacle porn. Like, there's <laughs> a scene where one of the characters sort of 
she's like a reader and is like reading erotica out loud. Like I mean, people are putting bells in their vaginas. Yes. Um, in that film as erotic acts. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Which is a very realistic. It's the most. <laughs> I mean, who has it in there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the point for me is that like this is an art film it's and it's like a film it's a fetish film in a lot of ways like a lot of what's being explored here is like weird perversion and weird sexuality and it's like a theme throughout his filmography it's like relevant to the history of South Korean cinema. He's like influenced by a filmmaker Kim Ki-young who is very famous in South Korean cinema for like having these really strange depictions of female sexuality as, Mm -hmm. like, a way to counteract kind of the um, bureaucracy of that, like, their governmental structure. And it was, like, a whole, like, metaphor for the way that systems worked in that it explodes heterosexuality. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's more to talk about here than just, like, this doesn't look like the sex that I'm having. Like, no shit. Right. Like, what Like what in a movie, like, what sex in a movie looks like the sex that anyone is having? Right. To be honest, this is, like, something that we were talking about, too, where, like, I'm not straight, so, like, this is something maybe I can speak to more so than usual, but it's also, like, straight sex in a movie, in movies, doesn't ever look like real sex no. either. That is one of my pet peeves. I Every time I watch straight sex in a movie, I turn to my boyfriend and I'm like, she didn't get up to pee. She's going to get a UTI. I'm so stressed out. It's so distracting. The, the woman just rolls over and it's like everything just seeps out of her and then she just goes to bed. I'm like, you are going to get a raging UTI. That's so dangerous. Or it really like, upsets me. People are like orgasmic like the second (laughs) someone touches them like there's no foreplay whatsoever and everyone's like yeah that's how straight sex works though Tao. like a heterosexual man like lightly grazes (laughs) a straight woman's shoulder and then she comes like three times yeah like also up against a wall always that's the only way we ever have sex I hope our listeners (laughs) are like learning a lot yeah yeah I'm certainly learning a lot of like in alleyways. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we, we you mentioned this, but The Handmaiden and, and Park Ching Wook's uh, like filmography, he's kind of a perverted guy. Like, yeah, he, he did, is perverse. He did Old Boy, which includes a lot of incest, um, <laughs> like right there. And that is a very famous film of his. But like, it's just interesting for someone to go into The Handmaiden and look for realism. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's also. It's a film that's exploring like women's agency through sexuality and through an artistic representation of sexuality. Like those sex scenes are weirdly funny. Like they're Mm -hmm. like laughers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like I don't think that the thing that you're necessarily supposed to be taking out of those scenes is like, wow, this is super hot or like, wow, this is God exactly like my life. Right. Like what in this movie in general, is, like, life at all. It's, like, this character (laughs) can't leave the house because she's being trapped by her, like, perverse uncle who's been raising her to marry her from birth so that he can get her inheritance. And also to narrate erotic fiction. Right, and to narrate erotic fiction for, like, the books that he forges. Right. (laughs) So like the lives of everyday lesbians. Right, right. (laughs) I mean, I know that's how you were raised. I mean, well, I'm an exception. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was raised like this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you think part of this is, at least when, before I saw it and I heard people or critics talking about The Handmaiden, I, 
it was sort of being described as this lesbian romance and not really delving deeper into like the nuances of it or the complexities of the story. And do you think people are so starved for that sort of representation on screen that they're going into it and immediately they're disappointed because it doesn't? Absolutely. And I also think it's like, I think we're also starved for critical perspectives from lesbian women as well. I mean, and like talking about Blue is the Warmest Color, there was a huge outcry about that movie and the sex scenes in that movie because there was a sort of misinterpreting of the the complaints the actresses made about filming the sex scenes and how many times they had to do them and how he was kind of like verbally intense with them. I don't know. I don't know if they used the word abusive. Um, Right. So like that movie had a lot of like difficulties in the way that it was shot. Um, But then that was frustrating, too, because at the same time, this is, again, another issue with the way that these films get talked about, where it's like everyone fixates on the sex in both the production and in the final product. Like the sex scenes are like 10 minutes of a three hour movie in Blue is Warmest Color. Um, And when the actresses were talking about the abuses that they experienced on the set of that film, most of what they were talking about was in relation to the fact that it went several months over schedule, that they weren't given direction as to what their characters were supposed to be doing. There was never a script. They were always in a position where they were being asked to be very emotionally vulnerable, but like without a sense of direction. And as artists, their complaint was really that they were being asked to shoulder a huge burden without any sense of security. Right. It was about labor. Right. It's about labor. And that's a different conversation to be having than and it's a conversation to have concurrently with I felt uncomfortable filming sex scenes for a week. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And I think there's there's a way in which um, it winds up ignoring the agency of women artists who are collaborators in creating the final product Mm -hmm. and like gives too much agency to male directors and their um, control. Right. Basically, you know, film is a collaborative medium. And I think that we would all be we would all benefit from thinking of the contributions that women make on set as valid ones. And it's almost like we're objectifying these women by complaining. Right. You're re-objectifying. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Right. Yes. More Lady Problems after this break. So the other movie that we wanted to talk about uh, in in relation to this topic is Elle, which is a new movie that just came out uh, from Paul Verhoeven. Am I saying it right? Yeah, I love him. Oh, <laughs> love and him so much. It's French as fuck. It is so <laughs> weird. Uh, again, another really fucked up movie about women in a good way. But it's been even more controversial than The Handmaiden in the sense that like people are saying it normalizes rape and it mansplains rape and it sort of defangs the whole idea of consent and. Um, the three of us actually saw it together this weekend. And I, I mean, what, do, what did everyone think in that, in that particular sense? So I guess like just to recall the last conversation that we had about Blue is the Warmest Color, like we should say up front that Elle is a movie that started 
as a project that the actress, Isabel Huppert, brought to Paul Verhoeven. Right. So she had this, she was given this book, read this book, was like, I want to play this character. Let me find someone as fucked up as me (laughs) (laughs) to direct this crazy ass movie and settled naturally, I would think, on the director of Showgirls, Paul Verhoeven. Um, and Paul Verhoeven initially like took the project, was like, okay, but we're not going to have you. Tried to sell it to a bunch of American actresses who were like, lol, no, this woman gets raped like four times and maybe likes it once. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then was like, okay, who pair? Like, you're on. Right. And so this is like really a two-handed project. Mm-hmm. And the whole fucking movie is about her. Like, she's amazing in the movie but it's it's very much like a one of the reasons I think people are talking about it is because it's like the apotheosis of this woman's career. You know what I mean? Like as an Isabel Huppert fan, how many fucking movies have I watched where she's been raped and liked it? Like, girl, I'm sorry. I have watched this woman like perform abortions. I have watched her like like try to fuck her mom. I have watched Whoa, her try what to movie like is fuck that. Oh, The Piano Teacher? Oh, I've never seen that. Oh, it's great. She also gets raped in that. Okay. She also likes it in that. She's really into it in that. Even more so than Elle. But anyway, so it's like she's had this whole career that's really fixated on kind of the darker elements of female sexuality. Mm -hmm. And this is an artistic aim for this person. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't know much about the movie. And yeah, going off of Isabel Huppert's career, I I probably should have known better. But uh, (laughs) I thought it was going to be a rape revenge movie, which is I'm always on board for. (laughs) And really, it's it's far more complicated than that. You know, this is someone who is assaulted and is instead of, you know, curling away from her rapist and and plotting against him, she's actually drawn into him more and she's curious about him and she starts, I guess we're spoiling the film, but like is basically it's been out for a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is basically, you know, moving towards someone that like sitting in the audience I'm thinking like what is she doing? Right. Well, it's also it's like- a weird position to see someone in and it kind of goes against like what I would expect from that character Mm -hmm. it's also what you're watching too is she the film opens with her being raped and the the person who rapes her is wearing a mask he's anonymous to her and then she has this separate fascination with a man who she knows intimately and then he turns out to be her rapist which is its own psychological scenario and one that's pretty specific um yeah, and I just think that that's also missing from critiques of this, where it's like she doesn't know that he's her rapist. She's like very interested in him romantically, but not even say romantically. She like is like she wants to fuck him. Right. Um, I don't think that she <laughs> that has can be romantic. <laughs> I don't think she really has like romantic romantic right. interests in this movie, but she really wants to fuck this guy. And then it's like, well. I still kind of want to fuck right. you, though. <laughs> well, and, it's, and as you, as we talked about too, like this is a specific character, a specific psychological yeah, portrait of one person. It's not. She's the daughter of a serial killer. Right. Like, like it's so hyper, hyper specific, and it's not purporting to stand in for like all of sex or all of the way, all of women's views of sex or all of women's views of rape or every sexual assault. And and as you said, Teo, like you. It's. I think it's, like, so American of us to be, like, well, this is a bad way to, like, depict a woman's response to rape. Or, like, this right. is, like, the yeah. wrong way. Like, and I think, you know, part of me, there is a part of me that, that thinks, like, 
well, do we really need that? Do we really need more movies that sort of complicate the narrative? Right. And, <laughs> totally. And like, yeah. we have enough media that is constantly depicting women being raped and like, in mm-hmm. very horribly and unrealistically. But then it's a lot more interesting to me to have film and art that continually complicates that mm-hmm. and doesn't, I don't want it to just be totally wrong or just be totally right and right. realistic. And I think what's fascinating about Elle is that it really it's in this weird gray middle ground where I'm still trying to process how I feel about it. Me too, yeah. I also think that a lot of women do wind up sleeping with their rapists after they've been raped. This is like not a... an uncommon phenomena. You know what I mean? Like this isn't coming out of nowhere that this situation... I mean, this specific situation probably has not arisen too many times. But, you know, that psychological impulse isn't something that's like a fucking unicorn. You know what I mean? It's like she has this response um, and is figuring it out through the film. But it's also one that could be could be relatable. And that, yeah, I I really hate to see um, there be a specific way that women are supposed to react to rape, Mm -hmm. too, where it's like you don't. Not everyone responds in the same way to an unthinkable scenario. That's why it's so violating, you know, because you don't have a a con- you don't have control over what you're you want to do or mm-hmm. what you feel about it. Yeah. But I can imagine too. Like, I mean, I I would imagine that in some ways it is sort of a cathartic film because she takes control completely of her own response to what happens. She decides exactly how it's going to go. She decides what it turns into. You know, it's just, it's very much, like, in the sense it is, she is, it is a rape revenge movie because it's like, she's, she's like fucking with like the concept of consent as it relates to this man and like turning the table on, tables on him. Right. Yeah. I also think on that note about, you know, this being a common phenomenon, like it is, it is interesting uh, the way that the movie sort of plays its its viewers. It's like, well, we understand that there is this masked man and he is the rapist. And then we understand that there is this next door neighbor who is sort of like this boyish uh, crush that she's sort of pursuing. And then at some point in the film, they become one. And that is a super unsettling. But it's not it, it kind of it kind of. It's a very interesting depiction of like who we think of as rapists. Yeah, that's yeah. true too. Most women know the people that rape yep. them. Yep. And mm-hmm. it's not always the masked man. And most men right. think it's the masked men. Yeah. Like yeah. Most men yeah, are like, yeah, yeah. You, you know, that wasn't <laughs> raped if you were on a date. You know, like that the, that boy yeah. next door, like no right. way. Yeah. Like their their interpretation of rape I think is much more simplistic from my experience. We're going to talk about something sort of tangentially related to what we were just discussing about this idea of sexuality being depicted on screen and what it means to have a realistic sex scene. Uh, This is sort of the other side of the coin of that because 
Um, last Friday, Bernardo uh, Bertolucci was did an interview uh, a while ago. I think it was what, like... 2014? Yeah, like yeah. not recently, but it just came out again. Um, he was talking about the scene in Last Tango in Paris with uh, Maria Schneider and Marlon Brando where he assaults her with a stick of butter. And none of us, just to clarify, have seen this scene because I stopped watching that movie halfway through because I got bored. Um, <laughs> yeah, the movie sounds boring, yeah. so uh, none of us have seen it. <laughs> but but so he talked about how... Um, so this is what he, he said in the interview... Uh, the butter scene was an idea that I had with Marlon in the morning before shooting, which the pair did not inform Schneider about in order to get her reaction as a girl, not as an actress. And the outrage about this was uh, palpable on Twitter with Jessica Chastain chiming in and Anna Kendrick chiming in and women saying how, that you know, you shouldn't watch this movie anymore and this is completely horrific, which, yeah, it is if that were the case, if they literally raped her with a stick of butter, that's horrifying. Um, but on Monday, uh, Bertolucci clarified that he said, I would like to clear up a ridiculous misunderstanding. Um, I specified, but perhaps I was not clear that I decided with Marlon Brando not to inform Maria that we would have used butter. We wanted her spontaneous reaction to that improper use. Somebody thought that she had not been informed about the violence on her, but that's false. She knew everything. She'd read the script. The only novelty was the idea of the butter. But Schneider, in an interview, Schneider, who's now dead, um, in 2007, told the Daily Mail, the truth is, was Marlon came up with the idea. They only told me about it before we had to film the scene, and I was so angry. And she felt humiliated and a little raped by both the director and star. I should have called my agent, she said, or had my lawyer come to the set, because you can't force someone to do something that isn't in the script, she said. But at the time, I didn't know that. So this is an extremely complicated problem. Um, and yeah, it, lady, lady this prob- is like the, the lady problem. problem. Yeah. I think regardless, like, the fact that she was 19 years old, she was dealing with two powerful powerful older men. Like, I just can't imagine, like, the odds are against her mm-hmm. to, to, to speak up and to not do something that she didn't want to do. Right. We can say this, too. If Bertolucci respected her as a an equal collaborator, there's no need to... Yeah surprise someone with a scene. Yeah, she's you know not what a I mean? play thing. Yeah, she's, she's not an just something you can like throw. Like, like give her liter- more credit. Yeah, right. literally yeah. her job is to pretend that things are a surprise. Right. Yeah, you're <laughs> Every auto- time. You're automatically <laughs> assuming that she's not capable right. of performing the scene right. the way it should be performed. So you're going to like throw Force some it crazy. Out of her. Right. Yeah. And it's like, this is the kind of thing that actually I think should produce outrage versus what we were just talking about. I think there's a very clear line between a director in blue is the warmest color, like making these girls do 69 each other 15 million times, (laughs) like on screen, and what actually we're talking about right now, which is crossing that line. Right, and not not letting your collaborators know what they're expected to be doing. And yeah. Oh, I was going to say, like, um, I'm not usually someone that says, like, feelings are facts. But, like, if this actress was saying for so long that this scene scarred her Mm -hmm. and she did feel, quote, a little raped, quote, like, you should listen to that and that's that and trust that opinion. And also, like, the the weirdest part of this for me is that he's drawing the line at the butter where he's like, it was just the butter that was a surprise. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's totally fine. Like, if someone just started using butter as lube on you (laughs) out of nowhere, like, that's not that's not not a problem. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, we should be clear that the scene is a surprise to her, like performing the scene. 
but um, that it's not she wasn't like penetrated with butter. Right. There also seems That's to be some confusion going on clear. about that. Um, she wasn't like physically assaulted. It's the psychological experience of not knowing what the fuck is happening to you at your workplace as someone pretends to assault you. Yeah. Um, and that's its own horrible experience. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, that's like its own trauma. And that's something that she like carried with her for a very long time. Right. Yeah. If you're going to like experiment wildly in a scene in your movie, like maybe don't pick the scene where someone is being assaulted. Right. To do those creative <laughs> just a, t- a hot tip. Yeah, you should for you, let, male you should let everyone there. on set know exactly what's happening. Right. Yeah. But I guess the, I have a question too. Like, how as viewers watching these male directed movies where someone's assaulted or someone a woman is being is having graphic sex on screen, it does kind of raise the question of like, how do we, like, when do we give the woman the credit? <laughs> you know that she was okay with everything going on, and when are we suspicious? And how do we ever make like? make that decision for ourselves. So like if we're putting the movies that we've talked about today on a scale, yeah. I would say something like L, that performer 100% a collaborator. Same for the handmaiden. Those people like knew going those scenes were choreographed. That's something that like the actresses have all talked about in interviews. They're choreographed, they're they know what they're doing and then the scene is over and they're done. Blue is the warmest color is a is a labor situation in which Every single scene was a surprise. Mm -hmm. And that was like an artistic experience that the actresses committed to and was very frustrating, but it was still like an artistic project that they were considering. And then we have like Last Tango in Paris, and that's a situation in which someone is being exploited without their consent, is not being treated as an equal collaborator in a project that is their profession, professional interest or like professional whatever. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's it's inappropriate. She was she was taken advantage of. Yeah. It goes back to the, the episode we did where we talked about Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. That idea of like the auteur and like this is just how he works and mm-hmm. this is just something that he does and we need to allow him that creative process when it's like actually he's not the only one that's working on this project and. God, that is such 60s, a dangerous idea, yeah. The 60s and 70s were honestly, like, fucking mayhem. <laughs> like, what I was saw, going on? I saw a tweet from Ellen Burstyn about this whole thing where she was like, this is just, like, the hi- this is the most extreme example of something that was very common in 70s filmmaking. And I was like, oh, girl. This is a book. <laughs> it is. Guys, like, who's writing it? Tail. I call it. Okay. <laughs> All right, looked for Teo's book, 2017. The oral history oh, of every of bad oral. thing that ever happened <laughs> on a 70s set. Perfect. Here's an ad, then more lady problems. Hazel, do you want to tell our listeners the one thing that they could do this week to fuck with the Trump administration? Yes. Uh, so this week I have been reading some articles about uh, stories of young Muslim women, especially in New York City, who are being harassed on the subway and nobody is doing anything or intervening and helping people. And so I wanted to share, uh, there's this comic that's going around. It's by a Parisian artist named Marie Shireen Yane, who, uh, it's this comic about what to do if you're witnessing Islamophobic harassment. Um, And it basically advises people to, you know, engage in conversation with someone you see on the train who's being harassed and, you know, pick a subject, start talking to them 
and then sort of keep building this safe space around them, especially because if something is going to get physical, you know, you want to sort of create a safe space around them and then sort of continue the conversation and then escort them to a safer physical space, whether Mm -hmm. that's another car or you're helping them leave the train and walking with them on the platform. So, yeah, I think that is one small thing that uh, people can do. And it's something, but it's the conversation should be benign enough. Like my personal response, I think automatically would be be like, fuck you, dude. Like, and like go crazy. That might blow up. But that won't help. And I think this is actually extremely uh, important for me in particular as like an angry bystander. Yeah, sometimes inanity is more helpful than like righteousness. Now we are going to listen to a lady problem from our listener, Jackie, about a semi-shitty coworker. Mm, semi. <laughs> Hi, lady problems. Uh, first of all, I love you guys. Um, thank you so much for doing such a great show. Um, every single episode makes me laugh and makes me want to cry a little bit. Um, so my lady problem is related to politics in the workplace. Um, I am in my early 30s, and I consume a lot of political media. Um, I do a lot of reading. I listen to a bunch of politics podcasts. Um, I consider myself fairly well-informed when it comes to politics, and I work with a bunch of people who are not. Um, One of these people in particular is a young woman who's in her early to mid-20s. She's from a very rural part of the Midwest, (laughs) And she is the most conservative person I think I've ever met. Um, And just after Trump's win, um, I was terrified. Um, I identify as a queer woman. Um, I am bisexual. I've had relationships with both men and women. Um, I have many friends who are in the LGBT community. I have many friends who are Muslims. I have many friends who are immigrants. We work with a lot of people who are both immigrants and Muslims. So um, this election was really, really hard for me um, on a personal level. So I made the mistake at work one day of talking to someone else about my fears and how scared I was and how upset I was over the fact that we elected a racist Cheeto to be our next president. And she inserted herself into the conversation um, and was like, I don't understand why you're scared. Nothing's going to happen to you. It's fine. And I very calmly went off. (laughs) It was like, I need you to understand, here's why I'm scared. Here's the things that are upsetting me. And it ended up with us yelling at each other in the middle of our office. It it, it was bad, basically. Um, And we both had to walk it off, and we both got talked to by our bosses and our bosses' bosses. Um, It's it's not going to be a thing at work, but it still kind of sits in the back of my mind that this person that I work with voted for and supports someone who actively wants me dead or actively does not give two shits about me. Um, And that to me says she does not give two shits about me or any of the people we work with. My question is, how the hell do I interact with people that I know um, don't care about me and 
I guess that's kind of strong, don't care um, about the problems that I face or the problems that others face. Um, and how do I reconcile that? I mean, I don't have to hang out with this person outside of work, but I have to spend 40 hours a week with her. Thank you so much. I love you guys. What What do we think, guys? Well, the first thing I would say is, honestly, maybe the best thing to do is going forward. Don't po- talk about politics with your coworkers. I know it's really hard and you have to work alongside them every day and work with them, but it can just be very messy and... I I certainly don't think it's a good idea to talk about politics with your coworkers. It's also, I think in this particular situation that you're describing, the person that you work with seems to have compartmentalized you as a person and the things that she believes politically. And this is like maybe a, a harsh thing to say, but I think maybe the thing to do is to do the same to her, where it's like you have to, you're going to have to deal with her at the workplace regardless of if your relationship is good or if your relationship is bad and she's clearly already operating from a place of cognitive dissonance and (laughs) I just don't know that there's much you can do to break her out of that without like investing all of your time and energy at your job in a relationship Mm -hmm. that like seemingly isn't going to get you much I think there is a a world in which, depending on your relationship to this person before you found this out, you can explain your position just being like, I'm uncomfortable because I'm a queer woman and and I, you know, this is like something that feels very personal to me. So maybe even by way of explaining to her that you don't want to talk about politics. Yeah, maybe that's the thing too is like – So she knows exactly where she clearly butted into her conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So maybe the thing, yeah, is just to clarify that you don't want to be – having these conversations and Mm -hmm. then leave it at that. And if it were me, I'd be like, then I just do like little passive aggressive things for the rest (laughs) of my time. Like I would wear like, like I'm queer as fuck, deal with it, t-shirts to Leave a new piece of Hillary merch (laughs) at her desk every week. Like mail her like Hillary related paraphernalia. Like (sighs) I really would. That's that's probably what I would do. As you guys know, I like to do, I like petty revenge. (laughs) (laughs) I also think like, Keep an eye on maybe how she treats the people that you work with who are marginalized, too. Like, if you're working with a lot of people as clients who are Muslim, like, and she starts mistreating people, you know, that's something, like, really legitimate to be worried about. And um, if that isn't happening, you know, it's one situation. But if it is, then maybe talk to a supervisor. Yeah, that's a good point, too. So, yeah, petty revenge. And avoiding actually talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's our advice to you. And thanks for listening. And thanks for the nice message. We hope that you find cooler coworkers. (laughs) (laughs) And if you would like to leave a message about your lady problem, we are here to answer any questions you might have. So call us at 205-677-5239. That's 205-677-LADY. And we would love to hear from you. So please give give us a shout. That was Lady Problems for the Week. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Handler, and I was joined by my lovely co-host, Hazel Sills. Thanks, Hazel. Thank you. And Teo Bugby. Thank you, Teo. Thank you. And we'll see you guys next week. This episode of Lady Problems was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere.
You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. 